Well, good morning, New City Church, and I just want to say thank you for helping us uh, move to two services, coming a little bit earlier than what you would have if you came last week at 10 o'clock, uh, to make room for more people to meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. Uh, I want to begin with the story of three women who had died in a car accident at the same time, and they went to heaven. And when they got there, uh, St. Peter greeted them and said, hey, welcome to heaven. Here in heaven, we only have one rule, and that is that you are not to step on any ducks. And so they enter heaven, and sure enough, there's ducks like everywhere. I mean, they are everywhere. It's almost impossible not to step on a duck. And although they try their very best to try to avoid these ducks, uh, one of the first women accidentally steps on one soon after their arrival. And so as soon as she does, uh, along comes St. Peter with the absolute ugliest man that she has ever seen. St. Peter then chains them together and says, your punishment for stepping on a duck is to spend eternity with this man. The next day, the second woman accidentally steps on a duck and along comes St. Peter again, and he doesn't miss a thing. With him is another extremely ugly man. He chains them together with the same admonishment as the first woman. Now, the third woman is watching all of these things, and she's observing it, and she does not want at all to be chained to an ugly man for all of eternity, and so she is very careful where she steps. Uh, after a while, she goes months, doesn't step on a duck, but one day, St. Peter arrives with the most handsome man she has ever laid eyes on. He's tall, he's got long eyelashes, he's muscular, he is in shape. And then St. Peter chains them, to, chains them together without saying a word. The happy woman says, I wonder what I did to deserve to be chained to you for all of eternity. To which the guy says, I don't know about you, but I stepped on a duck. <laughs> no, I share, it's awesome. Uh, I share that story because it's awesome. Um, but, but B, man, as we continue our, our time in the book of James, if I were to title this sermon, if I were to give this sermon a title this morning, here's what I would call it. Are you a Christian, bro? That, that's what I would call this sermon. Are you even a Christian? Because today we're going to talk about what God wants us to do. For those of us that follow the name of Jesus, he's going to say, here's what I want you to do. Here's what it looks like to follow me. Good news, it has nothing to do with not stepping on ducks, but we want to see what it actually looks like. And really, the entire book of James is very practical, wisdom-based principles on what it looks like to live out the Christian life. Again, this is what your faith at work looks like, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn me to James chapter 1. If not, there's a black one in front of you. We'll be on page 1071, and if you do not own a Bible. You can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Uh, we're in the third week of the book of James. Again, we've talked about, again, uh, trials, uh, temptations, uh, test, testing, even money a little bit. And today, again, some practical examples of what does it look like to live out this faith that we say we believe it. And so James chapter 1, starting in verse 19, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, or not easily angered. Verse 20, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Now, uh, James talks a lot about righteousness in this particular passage and in James overall. And for James, uh, when he talks about righteousness, maybe the, the 
easiest way to understand this is rightness, uh, like conducting one's life by the will of God and according to his standards, someone who is right with God based on how they live. Now, God's righteousness or the righteousness of God is one of the great theological themes throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you see God is described as righteous and holy, and of course, we are not. God is perfect, and we fall short of his righteously perfect standard. And so in the book of James, James is trying to encourage Christians of this is what it looks like to live a right life, to to live a holy life that honors God and loves others, right? Here's what the unrighteous or the unclean can do to become presentable before God, even in the midst of your sin and my sin. And so he first starts talking about anger because our anger can lead us to do things that are not in line with God's righteousness, Right? Our anger can cause us to behave in a way that is dishonoring towards the Lord. Or maybe put another way, um, our anger can prohibit us from doing what God requires and asks of his people. Now, Jesus uses the word righteousness in much of the same sense. So again, James is obviously influenced by Jesus, particularly a lot of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he also talks about righteousness. It'll be on the screen. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, for us, you know, if you've read the Bible, familiar with church a little bit, you kind of know that maybe the Pharisees sometimes got into trouble. And so you're like, well, I don't want to be like the Pharisees anyway. A first century Jew, you would wish you could be like the Pharisees, right? And Jesus is basically telling his disciples, those that want to follow him, that there is a different kind and quality of righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees who were basically the religious leaders of the day. So again, if you think of righteousness as rightness, the Pharisees were always, quote unquote, right. They fasted. They gave to the poor. They did certain things. They followed all the ritual purification principles. Like they were a quote unquote good person. Now, maybe sometimes their motivations weren't good, but at least on the outside, they looked like they had checked all of the boxes, right? They often would take pride, not all of them, but many of them would take pride in their outward conformity to many extra biblical traditions and regulations, but they still had impure hearts, And so what Jesus is saying, again, for the average first century Jew, like a Pharisee was an all-star, Jesus is saying, you who was not a Pharisee, you can actually do more good things than them. Right? And the question is, how is that possible? What, Jay, what, what, what uh, Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, what James is going to tell us is that you need a new heart. You need proper motivations to live out righteous lives. Therefore, it's not just the things you do, but why you do the things that you do. Right? You need not just an, an improved heart, but Jesus goes on to say that you actually need a new heart. Right? True righteousness or true rightness is, is one that motivation is to please God. It is not to look good. So even many of the Pharisees, man, they did a lot of stuff that looked really great, but a lot of times their motivation was look at me, look at how much better I am than you. And so what Jesus says, is probably a pretty a radical thing. He says you can actually be more righteous than a Pharisee. Like you can do that. Or maybe in our context, like you can be more righteous than a pastor because it's not about theological qualifications or Bible knowledge per se, although those things are fine, but rather a life that strives to honor the Lord. And anyone can do that, right? Anyone can live a life where they desire to honor 
God. Like you, you, right now, you actually can be a more righteous person than me, who's like a quote unquote professional Christian, right? You can, because it's not necessarily about what you do, but why you are doing it. And that our motivation would lead us to holy and loving behavior. And so for James, uh, being quick to anger, therefore, or then, will not produce behavior that is God-pleasing, right? A quick-tempered Pharisee, for example, will not be one that lives righteously, even if they have all the qualifications. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34, uh, this is the most quoted uh, passage in all the Bible. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, 7, and 8. I'm just going to read verse 6. At this point, God is, uh, telling Moses, or sorry, Mo God is telling Moses who he is, some of his characteristics of who God is. And God says this in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love and truth. God is a compassionate God. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and truth. Now, slow to anger, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, is a combination of two Hebrew words. Literally, the first word is erek, which means long, and it's in reference to distance or time, so it means long. And the second word is apaim, which means nostrils. So if you were to literally translate Exodus 34, verse 6, God is actually described as being long of nostrils or long of nose. Or maybe if you want to like picture this, like, like picture Pinocchio, except not because he lies, okay? This is how God is repeatedly described in the Old Testament, that he is long of nose. Now, you can kind of pick up on this. Like if you think of like the cartoons that you would watch right, as a kid, and sometimes uh, they would exaggerate their nose for effect, right? When a character gets angry, its nose would flare up or like steam would come out or it would turn red. What James is saying here is that oftentimes our anger can produce behavior that is not pleasing to God. Our anger can turn into violence. Um, it can turn into hurtful speech. It can turn into bad decision-making. So one of the practical things that James says is that anger does not produce the rightness of God. Anger does not produce the rightness, the righteousness, but for our purposes, the rightness of God. Now, now here's what this means for us, because maybe you're like, well, yeah, I kind of knew that. Here's what this means practically. What this means is that you and I cannot excuse our tendency to anger as a personality defect. So if you're saying I mean, anger is an issue for me, what you cannot do, what we cannot do, yes, some people might be more prone to it than others, but what we cannot do is that we should not excuse it, that we, whether we should address it and we should recognize it. Now, we cannot say, for example, with anger, now you could do this with any issue, but particularly right now for anger, what we cannot say is, I just am who I am, or this will just always be an issue that I deal with. Like, I will always be quick-tempered. We just have to understand that that is not a biblically informed idea about anger or otherwise. Now, it very well may be true that anger will be an issue for the rest of your life, but it is not a foregone conclusion if you are in Jesus, Right? Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, for example, that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so I think we should read things like James and say, man, I actually can grow in this. It's not that I may, may never be perfect. I may never not have a tendency towards anger. But what I cannot say is it doesn't matter. I am who I am. There's nothing I can do about it. Because that is not what Jesus would say. Not what Jesus said. Anger does not produce the rightness of God. We could not excuse maybe our desires to, to do things that are sinful or do things that are unloving as I just, I am who I am. As we follow Jesus, we should recognize these issues and we should strive to honor the Lord in them.
And so James continues, verse 21, he then says this, Therefore, ridding yourself of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So what he's basically, the, the, the word picture here is like, it's like literally removing sin and filth. It's like taking off dirty clothes from your life, right? It's like when you go outside and a kid, it's raining and there's puddles everywhere and you're like muddy or when it snows, which it hasn't snowed in two years. So that's great, right? And your clothes are dirty, like you come in or like if you're wearing like a Carolina Tar Heels shirt, like you, you remove the filth from your life. That's what he's saying, like you remove these things uh, from you, you take them off. In fact, uh, the, the reason is because sin is everywhere. Even in Genesis chapter 4, right, after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, you get Cain and Abel, and, and Abel does a sacrifice that God approves of. Cain does not, and Cain gets really upset, and God tells Cain, he says, beware that the, the evil one or that Satan or, or the sinful desires are a croucher, that it's literally coming out you trying to destroy you, and so you need to be wise to make sure you make the right decisions. In other words, according to Scripture, that Satan is not, is not passively, but rather he is actively trying to pull you away, which means for us, you will not drift into righteousness. You will not drift into be, to being right before the Lord. And so to be righteous, one must receive God's word that has been given to you and internalize it and do your best to live it out. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. In the gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus' first parable is the parable of the sower. And basically what he talks about is like, there's a farmer walking around, he's throwing seed everywhere. And most of the places that he throws the seed does not sprout, does not produce fruit. But one place actually does. And so he, he does this parable. People are kind of, a, uh, kind of in, uh, confused about what it actually means. And then afterwards, Jesus uh, pulls his disciples aside and he explains to them the meaning of the parable. Mark chapter four, it'll be on the screen. Jesus says this. Then he said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? In other words, this is the foundation for everything else I'm going to teach. Verse 14, the sower sows the word and some are like the words sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And others are like seeds sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. Like, this sounds great. This sounds awesome. Verse 17, but they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. When they begin to experience resistance because they're following the Lord, they fall away. Or verse 18, others are like the seeds sown among thorns. These are ones who hear the word, but for the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. In other words, they're, they're following the Lord, but then things that are tempting to them, they fall prey to them and they fall away. Or lastly, verse 20, and those like seeds sown on good ground, hear the word, welcome it and produce fruit 30, 60, and a hundred times what was sown. And so what James is saying here is that we must interact with the word of God to give it good soil in our lives, have good practices in our lives so that it might take root and produce fruit in our lives. Ultimately, that through it, we might be saved. And so again, for James, it's like, let that impact how you deal with your anger. That we would hear, man, it does not bring about the rightness of God. And so I should not excuse it as I just is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. 
Because, and here's why. I mean, verse, verse 22, the next chapter in James, is like one of the highlighted, repeated themes throughout the entire book. What James is really saying is this in verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers, not just hearers, because if you hear and do not do, you are deceiving yourself, yourself if you think you are good. What James is warning here is do not be blinded to the reality of your true state before God. Because according to James, according to James, you can think you are right with God when you are actually not. You can think you're right with God when you're actually not. Now, all of us probably have times in our life where we thought things that weren't true. Or it's really, it's really easy to say something if you don't have to back it up. So let me give you maybe an example. A lot of people think that they can beat like professional athletes that like sit on the bench. So like I see this on social media or whatever, people are like, if you were in the NBA and like there's floor spacing and someone just kept passing you the ball, do you think you could score like 10 points in an NBA game? And everyone's kind of like, yeah, and you see the people never play. And so you're like, man, I could beat them, they never play. Well, let me just show you a picture of a former NBA player. Uh, this guy is Brian, name was Brian, his name is Brian Scalabrini. And you know, in this picture, like, he doesn't look like he's all that much of an NBA uh, player. What you don't probably know about Brian Scalabrini, uh, it was that he was in the NBA for 11 years which is a very big, very long time for someone who hardly ever played. Normally, it's like four or five years and you're out. In fact, the last year that he was in the NBA, he scored 32 points the entire season. An NBA season is 82 games. The year before that, he scored 20 points the entire season. There are some guys who will score more points in one year than he scored his, 11, his entire 11-year career. In fact, at least as of a couple of years ago, uh, Brian Scalabrini, NBA 2K is like the NBA game that comes out every year. Uh, as of a couple of years ago, he had the lowest rating ever of any game. It was this guy right here, Brian Scalabrini. Now, a couple of years ago, against, he became viral because he was out at some park somewhere, and this guy who's like the street baller basically challenged him to a game over his own shoes. The, the guy said, I'll, I'll bet you my shoes. They played one-on-one. -on -one. He won 11 to zero. Like, wasn't even close. And if you YouTube it, he actually started this thing called the Scalabrini Challenge, where he would go around and challenge anyone to beat him. It's one-on-one. -on -one, you play by ones and twos. He would beat probably about 90% of the people, 11 to zero. Every once in a while, somebody would score one point, and even rarer, somebody would actually score two points. But it was never close. Right? So you look at him, you're like, he don't look that great. He would absolutely destroy you, destroy you. Right, you think one thing, but it's not true. Or speaking of thinking you could do something when you can't, uh, Christina, when we got married, Christina like had this idea that she could like out wrestle me. Like she legitimately thought that she could wrestle me. And um, and so <laughs> second year of marriage, I, I don't know. She was like talking about it again. I was like, you can't. I was like, we're just different. And I know what you're thinking. It's like I wear like long shirts on Sunday to hide my muscles. So it's like you're like so buff. Like how could she even? But she thought she could. And so one day I was like, all right, this is let's let's, let's end this now. And so I, I moved the coffee table and I was like, all right, let's go. Let's go. Now, I didn't do anything. I didn't wrestle her back. I just stood there to see if she could, like, take me down. She couldn't, I, she couldn't move me. She couldn't move me. And she was like, well, you know, me and my sister wrestled all the time. I was like, I'm not your sister. Of course you wrestled your sister. I ain't her. Right? She thought she could, and then she came up, she realized she couldn't. And so, again, as we read this chapter, uh, this passage in James chapter 1, the question we should ask ourselves is this. Am I actually a follower of Jesus? Because you can say one thing, but it doesn't make it true. This is a very challenging passage. Am I actually a follower of Jesus? Do I hear the word and not do it, therefore deceiving myself? Because James continues, verse 23, he says this, Because if anyone is a hearer of the word, they hear the gospel, they could tell you the right answers about Jesus, right? And not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror, 
For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. And you're like, yeah, I got a coworker who does that like every morning. I'm like, every, he looks like that every single day. What James is saying here is to hear or to read or to take in God's word in the way of Jesus and do nothing is not righteousness. It's not righteousness. So maybe make it practically. What I mean is, is you can go to church uh, and you can pray and you can read your Bible every once in a while. And that does not put you in a right standing with God or make you righteous. Now, those things are great. And I think we should pursue those things. But those things is not what makes us righteous. That can position us because we can hear God's word. But just by hearing it and doing these things does not make people righteous. I, I share this a lot. One, one of the things I hear a lot of times is like people say, well, I grew up going to church or I've gone every once in a while or I pray the prayer one time, or I have a family member who's a pastor, or I've got a good friend who's like, like he's like, his righteousness counts for all of ours, right? And so we think these things make us good. And what James is saying is none of those things, none of those things actually make you good. Not saying, again, those things aren't good or those things aren't helpful, but you have to hear, and you have to hear before you can do. But if you are not doing, you are deceiving yourselves if you think you are good. You hear, but then you forget and you're not actually doing it. You're deceiving yourself. Now, um, you ever, I don't know if you ever like forgot. A couple years ago, let's just share the story. It's a little embarrassing, but it's kind of awesome. Uh, years ago, for Christmas one year, as a joke, Christina got me a pair of boxers of her face and hearts all over them. And, uh, and they're comfortable. And so a couple years ago, we were, we were members of the YMCA, and I, and I went to the YMCA to work out. Of course, this physique doesn't just happen. And... Um, and I go to, go to the YMCA and I go into the gym. You know, the YMCA is kind of old school. It's kind of like people just kind of walk around in the, in the uh, locker room, like not wearing anything. And so it's kind of like whatever. And so I'm there and I'm going to change into, from pants to shorts. And there's like four guys around me. And I forget that I was wearing that Christmas present. And so I, immediately when I change my pants, I'm like, my face gets red. These guys can see me. And I, I like pull my pants back up and I like take my clothes and I like go walk into a stall. I was like this. I was like, I forgot. So I was like, that was never again. Did that happen? I think I threw away after that, right? They were like, what is up with this guy? Those guys are weird, right? I forgot what I was wearing. Wouldn't do that again. Now, I think what James is saying here is essentially this. You believe what you do. You believe not what you say, not what you've heard, but what you actually do. Maybe may, may make this real, right? If you're married, right, and you actually believe that marriage is good, you will do things to create a healthy marriage. You cannot say it's important for a husband to love his wife if a husband does nothing that demonstrates his love for his wife. You say it, but you don't actually believe it because you don't do anything about it. If I were to say, I believe that my kids need their dad to be present in their life, and I did not do anything to intentionally be present in their life, I wouldn't actually believe it. I might say it, but my actions say, I don't actually think that's important because I don't have time for you, right? If I believe that forgiveness is good and should be pursued, which is like Christian or not, everyone in our culture says, yeah, grace and forgiveness is great then there will be people in my life that I have a good relationship with right now that I've had to forgive. If I believe forgiveness is good, there ought to be people in my life who have wounded me, who have hurt me, who I have forgiven, and I'm still in relationship with them. Otherwise, man, it sounds great. I don't actually do it. I'm a hearer and I'm a, not a doer. 
Like Jesus, don't do that. Instead, here's what we should do, verse 25, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not for a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Now, I just want to point out how, how James describes the law and honoring God. He calls it the perfect law of freedom, right? The law and the word of truth are perfect and they lead to freedom. What James says, the gospel of Christ and what he offers and how he instructs us to live is not uh, restrictive or boring, but it's actually liberating. Right? And the question is how? Because again, you think like rules, commands, don't do anything, don't have fun. God's always angry with you. That's kind of what we think. Yet James says, if you follow in the paths of righteousness, you will be blessed. Or to put it another way, you will be living the good life. The good life is for those who live in the law of freedom. Now, how, here's how the law of Christ is freeing, right? One of the things we say often here at New City Church is that if you are in Jesus, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. You have nothing to prove because Jesus is righteous. His perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, his defeat from sin of the grave when he ascended uh, from the grave. If you are in Christ, you, that his righteousness has been imputed or given to you. You've got nothing to prove because in Christ, he has proved everything for you. And you have no one to impress because God looks at you, if you are a son and daughter of the king, as holy and righteous and worthy of inheritance. That you don't have to live your life trying to make people happy or, or trying to do things to look good on the Instagram or, or to look good in front of your uh, coworkers, I'm not saying how you live doesn't matter, but what I am saying is that we don't have to live to try to impress people because we're giving everything in Jesus. And so in response to the gift of grace that God gives us, we seek to live lives worthy of that gift that we have received. But if we have really repented of our sins and we trust that Jesus is our Lord, then we will want to, even if we don't always do it, there will still be this desire. We will want to live a life that honors him. Or maybe on the flip side, if you have no desire to honor God or to live the way of Jesus, James would say it is because you don't actually trust in Jesus. And listen, it's okay if you're there right now and you're still trying to figure things out. But James just wants us to be honest. If you have no desire to honor God with your life, it's probably because you don't trust God with your life. But the question then becomes, man, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're like, man, I got some issues. Like I got snapped at my kids last night. Like, does this mean I'm not a Christian? Like, what do I do with this, right? If you genuinely want to follow Jesus, but you feel like, uh, what if you don't know what to do? Like, what if you're in a situation, maybe you have a situation right now and you're like, I don't know what the quote unquote right decision is here right now. Like, what if I make the wrong decision, right? Here's my encouragement. I say this often. I think the best way to answer a question, if you're in a situation and you're not quite sure what to do is to think of it this way. To the best of my knowledge and ability, what would Jesus do if he were me? So if Jesus were my gender, he were working my job, he had my relationships, he had my money, he had my whatever, what would Jesus do if he were me? And hear me, you might still answer that question wrong. Like you might actually do what Jesus would not do. But just the fact that you have done that means that you have considered the Lord and tried to honor him. And even if you make the wrong decision, uh, I, this is my opinion, I still think the Lord is pleased because you have sought him out and you have tried to honor him. Listen, what James is saying is if you strive to live faithfully with what you know, with what has been implanted in you, you will be living the good life. You'll be living the good life if you're just trying to honor Jesus the best of your ability right now. And then James gives us another example of what this good life is. Verse 26, if, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he 
deceives himself. So I was looking at this idea of deception. Now, the, when James used the word religion here, it's a pretty broad word, and it typically kind of think, means what we kind of might think it means when we hear the word today. It's referring to worship in general and outward practices of ceremonies that honor God. So in the Jewish sense of the time, because James is writing to a, a predominantly Jewish Christian audience, it would typically refer to, and he's also in Jerusalem, it would refer to worship at the temple in Jerusalem and the various practices and the sacrifices and the rituals that you would perform when you would go to the temple in Jerusalem. So in the Jewish Christian sense, he is saying that anyone who goes through these worships, or sorry, these rituals in order to honor God, maybe you go to synagogue and you read the Torah, or you go to the temple and you do uh, the sacrifices, like you go through these good rituals, here is how you know if the rituals you are performing, if your worship is actually genuine. Even maybe like today on a Sunday morning, how do I know if my worship is actually genuine? Or if you're just going through the motions, here's how you know, right? For example, how's your language? Right? How do you speak about others or to others? And I'm not just talking about like cursing, although I would not encourage that. But I'm just like in general, like how do you speak about or speak to others? Is it honorable and loving? Is it demeaning or dismissive? Do you gossip and tear others down or do you strive not to participate in the office politics? Um, because at the temple, you do this, you sing praises, you give an offering, you do sacrifices, you serve, but in your everyday ordinary life, you do live, you do this and they do not correlate. So don't deceive yourself into thinking you are good. If on Sunday you do this and on Tuesday you do this, if there's no consistency, it's what he says earlier in James 21 or James chapter one, when he says that is double-minded, you say one thing on Sunday, but your life, it's not even that like you sinned or you made a wrong decision, but your, your life trajectory is totally different. You're deceiving yourself. Or in verse 27, the last part of James we'll read this morning, he gives a positive example of like, here is something that you should do. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look at orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So uh, maybe this helps to understand. In the ancient first century culture, there were not many money-making possibilities for women. Right? There, you couldn't get a loan. You couldn't get a credit card. If you were not married or had like a father or like a brother, like there's just nothing you could do. There's no banks for you. Like you were really kind of left on to hopefully people, somebody takes you in and is kind to you. So a widowed woman, and of course an orphan child, or even a, children, a child who only has a mom and there's no male figure around her or the family, had a very difficult existence, extremely difficult existence. And so James, I want to be clear, he's not saying that this is the only way to show that you love God, but he is saying this is one way by how you treat and care for the oppressed and the marginalized. That is a way that you can show if you actually love God. And so again, we would read a verse like this and we should ask ourselves, is there anything in your life or in my life that says, I care about those who have not beyond just thinking that you do? Is there anything in your life that says, I actually care for people who are in a different state or who are less fortunate or who are marginalized beyond just thinking that you do? In the same way, how friendly are you with the world? Maybe, maybe to make this practical, I think a, way, but a good way to, to ask, to, to look at this is this. Um, could a, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me stick to Christians here for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus, could a non-Christian look at your life and see anything about it that they would think was strange? So here are some maybe practical ways that you could be unstained or different from the world. Uh, what does your browser history look like? <laughs> would a non-Christian, would your browser history look any different 
than, than a non-Christian's browser history. Uh, how about financial generosity? The average American today gives 2 to 3% of their income to charitable causes, church or, or church or otherwise. If you're a Christian, is your financial generosity the same or is it different? Is it same or is it different? If you're married, I mean, how do you treat your spouse? How do you speak about your spouse? Like when, you, when you're a guy and you're hanging out with the guys and everyone else is trashing their wife, what do you say? If you're a lady and you're hanging out with your ladies and they're talking about how their husband doesn't do this, and he's, what do you say about yours? How do you speak about your spouse? Do you have friends or people in your life that you genuinely care about who vote different than you? And by the way, forced work relationships do not count. It's like, oh, I'm a cubicle mate who I actually hate and never talk to, but that doesn't count. Like, do you have anybody's phone number who like votes completely differently than you? Right? These are a way to show us, man, that's different because our world is very cancel culture, very you, you believe everything I believe or I don't want to be around you, right? Are we different? So I think a question you could read or ask after reading this passage, by the way, welcome to New City Church. It's been a really great morning, right? I think a question you could ask, I could ask after reading this passage is simply this. Am I actually a follower of Jesus? I, I don't know how you read this passage and not be like, mm, <laughs> am I good, <laughs> Right? So let's be honest, right? This sermon is heavy. Um, and so it's like James is saying, like, I need to do this and not do that. And I need to test whether or not my, my faith is my true or if I, am I deceiving myself? Like, how am I actually good with God? How can I know if I'm actually a good person? Right? How, how do I know? And here's the reality, man. You can't. Like, you cannot be a good enough person. And that's what's hard when you read a book like this. Listen, you cannot measure up to the righteousness of God. Your speech will never be perfect at all times. You will have opportunities to care for someone in need, and you will not do it. You'll get angry and blow up, uh, blow up at somebody. Maybe as you leave today driving home, that might happen to you on the road. You can't. But of course, God. But God, it's what Paul talks about in Ephesians, that we were dead in our trespasses, but in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, right? The good news of the gospel is this. The gospel of Jesus is not about any, it's not about you doing anything, but rather trusting in someone. So in order to be saved and to be reconciled with God, and it's not about you being a quote unquote good person. It is about recognizing that you are a sinner, that you have not figured everything out on your own, but Jesus has on your behalf. And so you repent of your sins and you trust in him in the midst of your doubts and your questions and not having all the answers that you actually can be in good standing with God, not based on your behavior, but based on what Jesus has done and your confession of him as Lord. Right? And so the answer to the question that some of us might be asking, like, am I actually a follower of Jesus? I think for many of us, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And so I, maybe here's a sign, right? If you feel any conviction today, if you've ever, if you felt any conviction whatsoever this morning, that is a sign, I think, that the spirit is alive in you, right? Because there's the tension, right? How do we reconcile that we are saved by grace, but that we don't want to just be hearers only and we want to be doers, how do we reconcile these two? Maybe it seems to be somewhat conflicting ideas. Well, again, I would just say this. If you believe, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he has forgiven you, that he's given you grace that you do not deserve, if you believe that, based on what you know, your actions will demonstrate that belief. And at the same time, God is willing to forgive any and every time we repent. See, if we don't repent, it does mean that we think we are right on our own. We take steps, we receive grace, 
when we fail. This is the good news of the gospel, that God saves us. He invites us into a better way. We pursue him, which is going to be different based on your experience and what you've known and how long you've been following Jesus. And when we fail, we turn to him. But if I want to maybe, I just want to close with this, some encouragement, because I know this might be a little bit heavy. First John chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages in all scripture. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 1, this is John, the apostle, one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he's talking about, he's talking about uh, following him and uh, like, um, fleeing from sin. But then he says this in First John chapter 2. He says, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. So that's the goal. Live a righteous life, a right life. But then he says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. In other words, we have someone fighting on our behalf, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the righteous one, the perfectly right one. In other words, here's the mental picture you can have. Think about this. Like when you have a kid and they're learning to walk, what typically happens? When, they, when your child takes their first steps, they're not really walking as much as surviving. You know, because like a toddler, one-year-old, 18-month-year-old, like their heads are like massive in proportion to their body. And so they let go of the coffee table. They let go of mom's hand. Their head just like falls forward. They take like step, step, and then bam, hits the ground. Now, when you see that happen, here's what dads or moms, I bet you did not do this. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Must have your genes. My boy wouldn't do that. My mind, like, what do you do? You're freaking out. You're like, he's walking. And you're like, what happens in our digital age is that you, you, you pick your kid back up, do it again. You're trying to get it for the gram. And so they smack the ground because you're trying to get the video. They got blood washing, running from the nose. You're like wiping off, do it again. You are freaking out because your son or your daughter is walking, even, even in the midst of their quote unquote failures. And so some of you right now, man, you feel so weighed down by the midst of your sin, but you're here, but you're taking steps but you haven't given up, you're walking, and you're walking. That's why John then says this, verse 2, last thing I'll read. He himself, talking about Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So maybe, maybe make this James really practical this morning. I would say this. Repent of your sins, trust in Jesus, and walk with him to the best of your knowledge and ability. And you just continue to repeat that cycle. You repent, you trust, you walk. Don't excuse your anger or your tongue or your lack of care for those in need. Just acknowledge, hey, Lord, I was not honoring you in this moment. I was not following you faithfully. Would you forgive me? And would you walk with Jesus into a better way?